Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our time together, our time to be in the Word together, our time to pray, to sing, to rejoice in what um, the things that God's doing. Um, we, we do really want to be praying for uh, Andres and Rosa, just like Jonathan said. Um, I got a note from Andres this week, and he was in quite a bit of pain, and um, that must, as Jonathan said, just bear on you all the time. So this dear brother, we want to remember uh, both of Andres and Rosa today in our prayers. I'm going to look with you in Jonah today again, and I want us to read chapter 4 <clears throat> for our scripture reading. Um, chapter 4, as it kind of concludes, this will conclude our look at the book. I thought it was interesting that uh, our friend Chuck took us through Psalm 139. And you know, one of the lines in Psalm 139 is, where can I go from my presence and where can I flee? And you know, this is exactly what Jonah's been up to. He's been trying to run away from God. He's been trying to flee from his presence. So uh, that tie-in in there just reminds us how God's word all ties together. I'm going to read for you today from chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, and I'll read um, the whole chapter, all uh, 11 or so verses. This is God's word. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is, why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceeding glad because of the plant, exceedingly glad. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed the scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. This is God's word. Let's bow and pray together. Father, we know that you have given us these things for our instruction. We know that Paul wrote 
that whatever was written in previous times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so we come today not only to look at Jonah, but to look beyond Jonah into other things that you've revealed to us in scripture. We thank you for your leading, for your help, for your Holy Spirit, and that you never leave us nor forsake us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, Jonah had an extremely, extremely difficult time in believing how God could be completely holy and just on the one hand, and yet on the other hand to be loving and merciful. He didn't see how God, uh, how a loving and merciful God could withhold judgment, could ever overthrow a city, and he didn't see how a just God could not destroy an evil city. He just wrestled with that. He wrestled with the goodness of God, the mercy of God, and he wrestled with the justice and the holiness of God. And we talked a little bit about that last week. But what this book brings up is the whole doctrine of providence. And I wanted to talk with you about that today because in, in this whole discussion of providence, and, and R.C. Sproul is, of course, a great one uh, in speaking about providence, um, but we want to talk about providence and understand a little bit about what we're seeing here in the book of Jonah. And we want to see how God's providence is at work. Theologians, you know, tell us that providence is one of the decrees of God. And we just read that in our, um, when we were doing our uh, questions from the catechism. The definition that the catechism gives us is the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now, in our Western individualistic culture, we, you know, look at stuff like that and say, we say, okay, basically existence, in existence, we have two choices. Either history is already determined and that what we do doesn't matter, or we have free will and the future is open and undetermined. We look at it like it's an either-or situation. Uh, but... The scripture tells us in the doctrine of providence that it's both. That it's both that the, script, that the future is absolutely determined and God knows everything because he controls everything from the roll of a dice on up. But it's also true that the Bible tells us that we are free and responsible creatures and that God calls us to act freely according to the wisdom given to us and to make choices and to follow those choices. We can see a bit of this in the life of our friend Jonah, you know, and, you know, Jonah's question was, was the future of Nineveh already determined or did the preaching of Jonah make a difference in Nineveh's future? The Bible just answers yes. Yes, both are true. God had already before the beginning of time decided that he was going to show mercy to Nineveh, but Jonah's role of preaching and calling Nineveh to repentance was absolutely essential and required. Proverbs 16.1 says it like this, 
The plans of the heart belong to a man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And you know, so he's saying the plans of a heart belong to us. We think of these plans, we make up our minds, and we act. And yet the whole thing, the answer of the tongue, the whole direction of everything is guided by God's holy providence. A person makes plans in their heart, but the answer comes from the Lord. In Proverbs 16, 9, it says, The man, mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We as individuals plan our way. We go, and uh, after we've made our plans, we go, and we find that it's absolutely been what God intended us to do. Now, some people might answer and say, okay, maybe... God takes care of the big things in life. That's what my mother used to say. God takes care of the big things in life. We take care of the small things, you know. But how can you have a sovereign God who isn't interested in the small things? When, when we've looked at the book of Jonah, we see all kinds of small things that God's interested in. A worm, a plant, a burning east wind. God's interested in all kinds of things, big or small. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, we take those dice in our hand, we roll that dice, but the decision of rolling the dice is all in God's hands. You know, they had the Urim and the Thummim to make decisions by. And we don't know exactly what that was. It was something uh, like stones that they pulled out and there was a if it fell a certain way, it was yes. If it fell a certain way, it was no. Or if it didn't do either, <laughs> it was maybe uncertain and you had to come back later. Well, you know, when I was a kid, we used to draw straws. You know, if you had to make a decision, if you had four sweet rolls left and you had five people you know, <laughs> or six people, who was going to get the sweet rolls? So you drew straws to see who got it. Well... He says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The Lord is in all of these things. So today I want us to look at God's providence in Jonah's life, what it means, and what comfort we can derive from this doctrine that God gives us. Now, let's start by looking at providence in Jonah's life. The text calls these things God's appointments. You know, you notice as I read chapter 4, it says God appointed a worm, God appointed a plant, God appointed an east wind. You know, in the very first chapter, it says the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea so that the ship was about to break in two. That was in chapter 1. God's actions, when Jonah runs away and he tries to flee from God, what does God do? God just doesn't let him go on his own and and desert God. God has a plan of work that he's going to carry out. So God puts the pressure on him. He says, he hurled a great storm. We talked about it being like a, the way a javelin thrower at the Olympics takes the javelin and he hurls it as far as it'll go. God hurled this storm at Jonah's boat. And then it says that God caused Jonah to give a testimony to the sailors. In chapter 1 at verse 7, he says, each man said to his mate, come let us cast lots that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. That's not 
an accident. That's not an accident. That's God directing the casting of the lots so that Jonah would be required to give a testimony about why he was there and what he was doing and how he was running from God. Um, we, we see God's providence forcing him to give that testimony. A little later, we see that the sea is raging and they, the sailors have only one hope. And the only hope they have is throwing Jonah over into the, into the water to save their lives. And they throw him into the sea. And it says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish. Put him right there. Do you think when Jesus was out fishing that night and he says, throw your, throw your nets over the other side of the boat. They say, Lord, we've been out fishing all night. We know fishing. We're fishermen. We know what fishing is. We know how to catch fish. It's the middle of the day. They're not going to be here. But if you tell us to throw it out over the other side of the boat, we'll do it. You know, reluctantly, no faith. There's nothing going to happen. They take those nets and throw them over on the other side, and they enclose such a large school of fish that their boats are almost going to sink. God's providence put those <laughs> put out that school of fish right there, because Jesus said, "Throw your note, throw your net over that side." Jonah uh, had to confess to God in chapter two, and you know what happened at the end of chapter two? It says. Uh, after Jonah says, okay, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. That which I vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. And the next verse says, then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. In other words, at the moment that Jonah gets through, he confesses his sin. He acknowledges to God that God's way is right and he'll keep his vows. God causes that fish to spit him out right onto dry land. Not spit him out in the middle of the ocean where he'd drown, but spit him out right there onto the dry land. In chapter 4, verse 6, when Jonah was setting aside, setting, sitting beside the city and waiting for its destruction, you know, God brought up that plant. Then he got all comfortable with the plant. The next day he sends a worm. The worm destroys the plant. He gets mad and angry. And then God sends this huge um, hot east wind that just blows right on Jonah. And Jonah's mad. He's upset. He's irritated. He's angry. But all three of those things were God's appointment. It says so right there in chapter 4, verse 6 and following, 6, 7, and 8. God appointed this. God appointed the worm. God appointed the wind. Over and over, we see God doing these things, actively doing these things. So, what do we know? We've seen providence in Jonah's life. So, what do we know about providence from the scriptures? What does this doctrine teach us about God? This teaches us that God is in control of all things. He provides the big things and the little things. And I bet each one of us could tell a story. If we had time just to sit down and talk about stories in our own life where God did something and we look back and see, 
God did that in my life. God took me to this school, or God gave me this experience, or God did this for me. I've got one that I want to tell you. Back in the 1980s, the late 80s, there was a, a mission that owned property down 12 miles away from our church in Union Mills, North Carolina. At the time I was there, pastoring that church, we uh, started to see, and Greg and Janet can back this up, that the property ended up for sale and then was bought by another Christian mission. It was bought by United World Mission. They bought 18 buildings and 30 acres of property, and they used it for a training center. One of the things they did, some of their missionaries moved to the area, and some of those missionaries and national partners started coming to our church. Two of the national partners were, one of them was from Senegal, families was from Senegal, the other one was from India. After a few years in the church, the man and his wife from India, who we'd gotten to know very well and loved them and welcomed them into our church, a man by the name of Bobby Gupta and his wife Lynette. They were part of a ministry to train students for the ministry, gospel ministry, in India. And Bobby asked me if I would serve on his international board. But he says there's one caveat. And the one caveat or requirement was that whoever was on the international board had to have actually gone to India and seen the work and understood what was going on in taking the gospel in South India. Well, I said, you know, Bobby, I appreciate this, and I'd, Susan and I would like to, to be more engaged in the ministry, but I have four children. Mary, our youngest, was about four years old, three or four years old. And uh, <clears throat> so we had a young family, and, you know, he says, You've got to make a trip, come to India and see the work. And I said, well, you know, we'll, we'll just have to see how the Lord does. I don't have a few thousand extra dollars to buy airline tickets to go halfway across the world and take care of all this. Well, so that was kind of in the discussion. I said, yes, I'd like to do this, but I can't do the trip right away. But at the same time, my brother Andy was sent from Procter & Gamble in New Orleans to be one of the first employees in China. And he went, he'd gone in 1988, and he'd gotten his life built up over there in China working with Procter & Gamble, gotten used to things, he spoke Chinese. And he said, Calvin, if you can come over to Hong Kong, he said, I'll take you with me and we'll go into Beijing and we'll go into Guangzhou, and we'll take you around and let you see some things in China. I said, well, that'd be great. <laughs> I still had the same problem. Still thousands of dollars for those airline tickets. I checked into it. They were about $1,800, $1,900 a piece because I had to fly to the West Coast, and then I had to fly to Hong Kong, 14 hours, and then I had to fly to Singapore, and then you went into India, but you only went into India three days a week in those days. You could only go in on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So, uh, there was the deal. 
the tickets were about $4,000. My sister is a lawyer, and she had been involved in a case in Nashville, Tennessee, with a senior partner in her law firm, and they had a medical malpractice case, and it was a big case, and they won it. And my sister called me one day, and she said, Calvin, I've won this case, and I've gotten extra money, and I know you want to go see Brother Andy in Hong Kong, but I tell you what, I'll buy the tickets and give you some spending money, and you can go anywhere you want. She said, you can go around the world if you want to. I'll take care of it. And so, you know, we got to go because God in his providence provided a case for my sister. My brother was in, in, in Hong Kong and we got to go into China and my friend Bobby took me, took Susan and me all around in southern India and we got to see their ministry and see what God was doing in that part of the world. God was providentially working in the big things and the little things. Now, if you have your Bibles open, look with me at Ephesians 1. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. This is something that we uh, often refer to, and yet in God's providence and direction, let's see what it says. Ephesians 1, 9-11. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of of his will. It says here that God is telling us about a mystery and that his mystery is the relationship of Christ to our world and that he's telling us that he is working according to his purpose and he works all things after the counsel of his own will. Everything. The good things and the bad things. I heard Someone say the other day that in the same town in Dothan in the Bible that uh, here's Elijah and Elijah goes through Dothan and he's called to be a prophet and to bring down the prophets of Baal, a great big thing. In the same area, Joseph was taken and was arrested, taken by his brothers and given and sold into slavery. There are good things and there are bad things that we think of that come as a result of providence. But God in His providence is working both the good and the bad things to His own glory and to His own specific ends, which He's working out perfectly. Now, the Bible is full of examples of things like this. Not only Joseph being sold into slavery, you think of how he was sold into slavery at 17. That's not a good thing. He was wrongly accused of attempted rape by his employer, the bodyguard, the head of the bodyguard of Pharaoh. Had to go to prison, house arrest for years. For years. Not a good thing. He gets down there, he prospers, he takes care of the household, the prisoners well, and 
Things seem to go good. And then two guys have a dream. He rightly understands and interprets those dreams given by God to help him come forward. <laughs> the baker and the butcher forget for two years. One of the guys forgets for two years. Finally, Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh has this dream that he can't interpret and he wants it interpreted and Joseph gets called up. And what happens to Joseph? The guy arrested, taken in slavery, wrongly accused, been a prisoner for years. He ends up being the second most powerful man in the Egyptian kingdom. And he ends up not only saving the household of Pharaoh by rightly interpreting that dream, but saving thousands of lives all over that region, people who would have died from starvation, plus he saves his own family and ultimately saves the family of the Messiah. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, descendants of David like young Joseph and Mary. And there comes the Messiah. You see, God is at work. He's at work in the big things and the small things, the things that we can't anticipate. You know, there are so many options to things, aren't there? Let's say that, um, well, I don't want to get too far afield, but you and I know that there are all kinds of options. That when one person comes to that one place and something happens because that one person is in that one place, something that wouldn't have happened if they hadn't have come to that one place. There are implications for years. There are implications on families. There are implications on households, on even countries. We talk about the doctrine of the providence of God and that God is in control of all things, but we often forget the second part of that doctrine is that we are absolutely responsible to act. We are absolutely responsible to called upon and responsible to act. The book of Proverbs puts it this way. The way God controls history, or sorry, this is a commentary on Proverbs. The way God controls history does not force us to act, yet all we do, every one of our steps, is part of his plan. We are called to act and we must act freely. We're told in scripture that one day in heaven that there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered there around the throne giving praise to God. We know that that's absolutely going to happen one day, that there will be people from every nation gathered together there to give praise and glory to God because they've come to know Christ as their Savior. They're going to be gathered. The, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the elect are going to be gathered from the four winds, it says. We're going to all be together and giving glory to God. That's absolutely certain. It is fixed. It is going to happen because God has decreed it. But what we also know is that it's absolutely essential for us to take the gospel to every nation. You are my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. We hear over and over again in the Bible, you are my ambassadors. The apostle Paul said, I don't want to be like the, like the watchman on the wall who forgot to tell people that the enemy was coming. I want to be sure that the blood of nobody is on my hands 
so that I've shared the gospel with every person that I come in contact with. God has commanded us to go to all the nations and make disciples. We are to carry that out. That is our responsibility because we want God to be exalted in all the nations and we know that this is going to cost us. You know, it cost Joseph years upon years of faithful obedience, living unjustly as a slave and then unjustly accused in prison. He had to live years upon years. It cost him something to do all that. Being obedient to Jesus is going to cost us. It's going to cost us labor. It's going to cost us sleepless nights. It may cost you some relationships that you have with either family or friends. It will mean that you will sacrifice some things that you would rather not sacrifice. Maybe it's something of your health. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's the use of your time and talents. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11? He said, I have labored hard for Christ. I've been in prison often. I've been beaten times without number. I've been stoned three times. I've been shipwrecked and spent a night and a day in the ocean. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he summed up all of his labors for Christ. And he says, for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. It's going to cost us something to be obedient. It's going to cost us something to carry out the will of God. God has declared that his glory is going to be to all the nations, that every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are going to be there. Yet we're called upon to do that. The other night when we were at um, the fundraiser for Cypress View for uh, the, the children's home, this is a wonderful thing. It's going to be a thing that invites children to be well cared for, to hear the gospel, to grow up in a Christian environment, to have Christian house parents, to be raised up and trained and given gifts and opportunities. And yet that's going to cost us. It's going to cost us prayer. It's going to cost us giving. It's going to cost us hard labor. It's going to cost people on the board working. It's going to cost people who are house parents. It's going to take care. It's going to mean the work of people that are coming alongside to counsel the children, to get the children, to deal with the state. In other words, it's going to take labor. It's going to take work. It's going to take human responsibility on our part. God says he ordains that these children come to Christ. And many of these perhaps will come to faith and love and know Jesus and grow up in a Christian environment, but it's going to cost us for the kingdom's sake. You and I are responsible to follow Jesus and to serve him in his kingdom, whatever the cost is. But don't forget that the doctrine of God's providence is a thing of great hope and a thing that gives us great comfort. We have hope because the future is not in our hands. Wouldn't it be terrible if the future was only in our hands? You know, we have wars and rumors of wars. We have Ukraine and Russia fighting. We have Israel and Hamas fighting. And wouldn't it be terrible if we thought the world was just a chance world where nothing happened except what evil men decided to plan? The world is operating according to God's principles. We don't understand sometimes how war and suffering fit in, but we know that he's working those things out. It gives us great comfort to know 
that our God is in charge and that he is bringing things together. If you look at Joseph's life and you look at how he was when he was 16, 17 years old, he looked kind of immature, like everything was focused on him as the favorite child. He was telling the dreams and maybe throwing it in the face of his brothers, like, look at me, one of these days you're gonna be bowing down to me, the sun, the moon, and all the stars gonna be bowing down to me. That means mom and dad and all you guys, you know? Joseph could have been a pain as a teenager, and yet he grows up, and what did God do? God softened that. God allowed him to go through suffering. God allowed him to serve others. God allowed him to become a slave. God allowed him time in prison. God allowed him, he worked off those rough edges. And Joseph was a different man because of the things that he suffered. He was able to make wise decisions when he was 30 years old because he had been through hard times. <clears throat> our hope is not in our hands, but in that the future is in the hands of God. And if we mess up in this life, if life doesn't turn out like we think it should, if life doesn't go like we want because of our failings, all is not lost. Because Proverbs 20, 24 says, a person's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand his own way? We can't control the future, but God can. And he does. He rules and he overrules. And if you make a hash out of your life, God is still in control and he rules and overrules. And our history is still going the way, ultimately, that he wants it to go. The future is not what it is because the future is what it is because of what God did in the past. The future is what it is because of Galatians 4.4. 4, because when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. God appointed that his son become the perfect sacrifice for sin. In the Old Testament, the perfect lamb was, you know, to be offered as the sacrifice. It had to be without blemish, without spot, without any deformities. And so Christ came as the perfect, obedient Son of God and died in our place. His death was our death. He took our place as our substitute, and he took the judgments that our sin deserved. He took the wrath of God against our sin so that we could be received and forgiven and be adopted into the family. You know, you can see God's providence in the life of Jesus, can't you? I mean, think about it. God sent his own son into the world at the exact right time. At the time when the gospel could go from one corner of the empire to the other because Greek was a universal language. Because the Greek culture was there, you could use the culture and the language to transmit the gospel all the way from one end of the kingdom, from one end of the Roman Empire to the other end. Jesus was forced to be born in Bethlehem because Caesar Augustus had a census and that census required that every family 
in Israel, the way they worked it out in Israel was that every family had to go to their ancestral home and to be present and to register in that ancestral city. And so being of the family of David, they had to go to Bethlehem. Mary's fully and completely pregnant, ready to deliver. And when she gets there, her son, who is the bread of life, is born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. We see Satan hates Jesus. He's trying to get rid of him. He hates God. He hates God's plan. He hates God's salvation. He's trying to ruin everything of it. He tries to kill Jesus when he's a child. Can't do it. He tries to kill Jesus when he's an adult. Can't do it. Jesus walks through the crowd. He tries to kill Jesus at the festival. Can't find him at first. Jesus shows up at the festival and then he goes to the cross to die for us. But Jesus' death on the cross didn't make Satan stronger. It didn't make his position any better. In fact, it destroyed his position. It destroyed his rule, his hold over us. It crushed Satan's kingdom, just like Genesis 3.15 said. Satan's kingdom, which is, he could say, laws against this one, laws against this one. Look what this one's done. Look what that one's done. Now the Savior has died. The price has been paid and everything has fallen on Jesus and he has no hold. Satan has no hold on us because his kingdom has been destroyed. Death and hell were destroyed on the cross, destroyed for everyone who trusts in Jesus' saving work. And because of Jesus' death, the future is not uncertain. The future is absolutely fixed for you. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are saved. You're not going to get, in a sense, you are going to get saved. Yes, you have been saved. You are saved now. You will be saved. You know, the perfect work of God can't be undone. He does not allow that. He is all-powerful, sovereign, completely able to do all his holy will. Man's sins and failures and ruin will be undone, and one day we'll live in a new world, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells, a new heaven and a new earth that will inhabit renewed resurrection bodies and a renewed, restored creation. God's providence means that the future belongs to God and it means that nothing can ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that nothing can ever separate us from you and that you have established your church, that you have built up your church, that you've inhabited your church, that you'll keep your church, you'll keep your own until the day you take us home and then we'll be with you forever. We thank you for your love and mercy to sinners like us, to people who don't deserve to be welcomed or included or called your children. We thank you that you've loved us with the gospel, that you've loved, with, uh, loved us with Jesus, your only son. And now we pray, Father, that you'll be with us as we go, that we'll carry out our responsibility, what you've given us to do, that we'll carry it out every day and seek to bring glory to you with all that we do and say and think. In Jesus' name, amen.